Well, as I said, it's good to be back with you uh, this morning. It's good to, uh, even though the the snow was uh, a little bit of a brisk reminder, but thankfully it was about 45 and windy in Atlanta while I was there uh, last night. So I got a nice nice taste of what was waiting for me. At least I have a coat here. Didn't, didn't think that Atlanta would be cold enough to require a coat, so I was quite cold last night, but I couldn't say anything about it because I'm a Minnesotan. I can't be a Minnesotan talking about it being cold at 45 degrees. That'd be too embarrassing. But while I was down south, I, was, I had uh, some great time with my sister Anna and her family, and then I also drove up to South Carolina to be with my sister Kirsten and her family. And I heard a story, just a minor little story, but it kind of uh, dinged in my mind with what I thought I was going to talk about today. And it was about, uh, I was walking with one of my sisters in her neighborhood, and we passed by a a car with a uh, Minnesota license plate. She said, these people are not only from Minnesota, they're from a church up there. I said, oh, hey, you got a new friend in the neighborhood. She said, well, I'm going to have to wait a little bit to to be friends with her because uh, me and mom were driving the other day and the woman who lives at that house was a little annoyed at us and uh, that we were stopped too long at the stop sign and zipped around and cut us off and honked at us and drove off. I said, well, yeah, maybe, you gotta, maybe you're going to have to give it, a, give it a couple weeks to let that die down before you establish a, a friendship. But it was a reminder of something that I have noted, perhaps, you have noted as well that sometimes cars with bumper stickers proclaiming their love of the Lord, uh, often the occupants of those cars don't always live up to what they are proclaiming with their vehicles. And whenever that happens, I feel a special sense of uh, perhaps judgment, a bit of outrage. You're claiming Christian uh Uh, you're claiming identification with Jesus Christ and you're not living in a way that is commensurate with that faith. And I think there are a lot of uh, examples of that even in today's world. We we, uh, see the influence of Christianity on our public life waning in certain respects and yet even today there are people who would use the language and the identification with Jesus Christ in ways that benefit themselves. There, was a, there have been uh, controversies that were uh, within the last, I'd say, week and a half that I, grieved me a bit, where on social media there are people who uh, are using the phrase, Christ is king, in an absolutely unremarkable phrase with deep meaning from a biblical perspective, but using it in connection with extremely unchristlike behavior, using it as a form of a weapon. And that, that, is, that is grieving because, of course, if you take that phrase seriously, you want it to be used correctly. Another example of this that I've thought of uh, and that I've heard uh, within the last year about is I was talking to a friend of mine who was a server who told me that sometimes it's the after-church crowd who are the very worst to have come into your restaurant, because they're the worst tippers. I heard that. I said, boy, that's terrible. And, of course, I've had multiple friends who are, who are servers who have talked about people leaving a tract that, says, you know, that looks like a $100 bill instead of a tip. 
And I, I remember hearing about that and going, boy, what an incredible way to convince the person, listen, you should become a Christian like I am so you can be just as cheap as I am. <laughs> so you can be just as uh, tantalizing with appearances of a big tip, but that actually demonstrate your love of your own resources. Well, uh, each one of us can think of multiple examples. And I found it very easy to think of multiple examples of people displaying or claiming the name of Christ who will speak about being, quote, people of faith, or more specifically, being Christians, who their actions do not live up to that. Of course, the difficulty is in seeing in our own lives when our own uh, actions do not befit what we are claiming, when our actions do not uh, fall in line with the faith that we claim to have. And yet, when we read throughout James, it would be very easy, I think, and it would be very, uh, I think it has happened before, that people get very hung up on the theological implications of James chapter 2. Boy, it seems in some parts of the Bible to say that it's faith alone whereby we are justified. But here it says that faith can't save you without works. What is the breakdown here? And it's a fascinating theological question for people to get into. And people who are more of the Calvinist bent, or people who are more of uh, uh, a different type of bent, they, they will use this passage in different ways to argue theologically, what does this mean about when we get to heaven, why we'll be there. But if you read James as a whole, I think you're reading what is actually just simply a very, very uh, practical message to Christians. And the practical truth is that regardless of how you break it down, the fact is that if you claim to have a saving faith of G in Jesus Christ and your works do not reflect it, your actions, your lifestyle, your words do not reflect the faith that you claim to have, then you need to seriously examine yourself. Because James is saying something quite practical. If you indeed do have the, the Spirit of God residing in you, if you do have the faith that you claim to have, it will, as a consequence, manifest itself in what you do, and who you are, and how you act. And so this was something that was quite challenging because James then, throughout the rest of the book, has a variety of extremely practical applications. Practical applications that I do not live up to many times. And as we go through this, I think it's good to step back and say, hold on, let's, let me not get into worrying too much about the breakdown of faith and works. And simply say this, the Bible says, not simply in James but elsewhere, that a Christian will have his Christian walk and his Christian faith manifest by the things that he or she does. And if I were, if my faith, the amount of my faith, were to be assessed by my actions, not simply my actions externally when I'm at church, but also my actions 
when nobody's watching, my thoughts, my feelings towards other people, and my actions that seem to go above and beyond what is required of me by the culture around me, whether that's the church culture or whether that's my family culture or whether that's simply the other cultures, the other cultures that influence us, then how would I measure up? Another challenging question that I was thinking of as well is how would Christianity, or indeed Jesus Christ, be described if all that a person knew about it was me and my life? If some person, all Christian life died, and I was the only one left, and some scientist came to study, what is a Christian really like and was able to study my life? What would it reflect about Jesus Christ and what would it reflect about Christianity? Because it's very clearly laid out here. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. The things that we believe of a consequence influence our actions. And they influence our actions in concrete, palpable ways. And each of us see this in many different non-religious aspects, right? Each one of us has seen circumstances in which we have said, what you are saying, you believe. And what you are saying, you value. And what you are saying you love is not reflected in your actions. You are talking the talk, but you are not walking the walk. I think we can uh, each think of an example, perhaps, uh, from somebody in a romantic relationship. You say that you love me, but you don't act in a way that reflects that, in the way that you treat me, in the way that you communicate with me, in the way that you are faithful or not faithful to me. It doesn't reflect what your words say, what you profess to value, what you profess to believe. We see this as well with people who claim to uphold business ethics, or they claim to uphold in the political realm one set of values, and they don't live up to it. Now, again, it's important to, uh, to note here that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What we are reading about here is not simply a... Uh, a tool with which to browbeat other people. This is a tool to examine ourselves. This is a tool to examine the state of our own faith, something that we are required to do, and in fact, that only we can do other than God. Now, we can never truly even fully understand our heart, but we are the only ones who are able to understand our heart. The people around us can see the effect of our actions, but we are called in the book of James, as well as all many other places, not to judge because it is difficult for us to judge others, because it's difficult for us to know their hearts. Impossible to know their hearts. Only God knows the hearts. However, we can certainly judge our own hearts. And so therefore, as we're going through the book of James, and just going to touch on a few things, I think I would, uh, I would like that, that you do what I am, uh, have been attempting to do in preparing for this sermon, and just allow the word to really open us up and say, okay, in these areas, is my faith reflected in these actions, or is it not? Because as we work through these, these various uh, 
these various aspects, these various practical realities, I think we'll be able to see the connection that true faith would have to the right actions to do or the wrong actions to avoid. This is true of everything that is sinful. Every act of sin is an act of insufficient faith. It's an act of a lack of faith. Every single one. Every single good act that God calls us to do is an act of faith. It's, it's simply that simple. It's, in fact, it's a bit of a truism. Because in order for us to do what God calls us to do, we must be a believer that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. For us to sin, we must believe that he is not a just God who will punish sin. Again, it's very simple, and yet it manifests itself in many different ways. So, the example that is used here of faith translating to action, of course, here is Abraham with, uh, with relation to Isaac. Now again, we could get into the theological implications and say, well, in Hebrews it says that this was purely an act of faith. And yet here, this is an example of how he was justified by works. But of course, if we take a step back and we look at this just from a practical perspective, what James is saying, and what the Bible is saying, and what God is saying, is that they are inseparable. God, Abraham was not justified in the sense he was not saved. He was not acting on his own by putting Isaac on the altar. He was acting in faith. It was the power of God that gave him any ability to act uh, after what was, he was called to do. And yet, he still had to take action. He still had to do something. He still had to demonstrate a willingness to have the greatest sacrifice that you could possibly imagine. And much of what we're going to be talking about here is the, the tie between not simply faith and action, but also faith and sacrifice. Because, of course, one of the greatest uh, indi indicators of faith is sacrifice. In the same way that sacrifice is also one of the greatest indicators of love. If you see somebody who professes to love you, the amount that they're willing to sacrifice for you is going to be a pretty good indicator of that. If they say they love you, but they're not willing to sacrifice the time to take your phone calls, well, at a certain point, you might start to uh, be a little bit suspicious of that. If they say that they love you, and this is something that happens many times in, in today's day and age, they say that they love you and they're not willing to sacrifice in order to get married to you. Well, that is another indicator. So sacrifice is a... Uh, a great example of faith and of love. And we see this here, of course, with Abraham. His willingness, his love of God, and his belief in God's goodness and his mercy made him take the action to bring his son to this mountain and even be willing to sacrifice him and, and be filled with gratitude that God made another way out. Well, in the same way, we are called to a sacrificial love and a sacrificial uh, action that comes from our own faith. Now, James goes through a variety of different aspects of works that we ought to engage in. Now, I think let's, let's before we start going into these too deeply, let's, let's uh, just get some balancing truths in mind. 
It's important to remember that all of the works that James talks about here, all of the things that he talks about throughout the book of James, that none of them are sufficient to save us. Our own righteousness is as filthy rags. So any of these things that we do through our own will and separated from uh, God's power is meaningless. And it's any of these works, even the most incredibly uh, extravagantly, sacrificially loving of works that are done for our own motives and that are not coming from a heart of love. Well, 1 Corinthians 13 says that you can give your body to be burned. What an extravagant expression of faith. But if you have that without love, it profits nothing. And so these things are true. We must have these works are not to be from our own power. They are to be from God. And yet, it is also true that Jesus said that our righteousness, and the righteousness here does not simply mean the righteousness of our theology. It's the righteousness of our lives. The righteousness of our actions should exceed the scribes and Pharisees. And we don't think of this very uh, enough nowadays, but that's a high bar. That's a high bar in the way that it's easiest for us to judge ourselves, just in terms of public acts of religious duty. The Pharisees set a very high bar indeed. They set a very high bar in terms of their tithing, in terms of their, the length of their prayers, in terms of how often they would go to the temple, in terms of their scrupulous uh, attempts to follow all of the outward trappings of faith. And Jesus said, your righteousness needs to exceed that. Now, why does your righteousness need to exceed that? Because their righteousness was the product, in most cases, certainly in Jesus' day, of their own will and their own desire for recognition. It was a desire to uh, receive recognition and Jesus called them whited sepulchers because within, where there was no profit to them to be righteous, they were in fact unrighteous. And Jesus was saying, if you actually believe in what God is calling you to do, you will, your righteousness will exceed it. You will not have the opposite, where inside you're clean and outside you're filthy. You will be clean through and through. You will be pure through and through. So these are, balance, these are balancing truths here. These are things that we need to acknowledge. That our uh, salvation, that our eternal life is not thanks to our own works. And that works in and of themselves are empty. They cannot get us to heaven. And in fact, they are valueless if they are not springing from the love, that, uh, the love of God and the love and the power of God, the grace of God in our lives. And yet... They are still things that we are called to do. They are things that, in fact, are a consequence of faith if we indeed do have that faith. Now, I find something, I've talked about this before, but I, I think we need to uh, uh, come back to this quickly. Again, a challenging idea theologically, but we're not going to get into it theologically today. We're going to only talk about it practically is when Jesus talks about the separation of the sheep and the goats. And Jesus says they'll be separated 
based on certain actions. Now, I think it would be completely wrong in the scriptural context to read this and say as simply a short little checklist and say, okay, people who do these things go to heaven and people who do these things go to hell. That is, that is not the appropriate thing. However, I think it is appropriate to read this and say that people who are sheep, that is people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, people who are following the path that Christ has laid out for them, will generally act in these ways. And therefore, we can look at ourselves and say, am I acting in these ways? Because if I am routinely not doing so, then I am, it is a cause for concern. It is something that I ought to go to the Lord about. So, let's start here in Matthew 25 with verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations. And he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was in hunger, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was and hungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in, naked, and ye clothed me not, sick and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Now, this ought to be ringing some bells of recognition, because James is speaking about this in James chapter 2 that we read tonight, when he uh, read this morning. When he is talking about the works that faith will manifest, them, uh, manifest itself in, two of the examples that he gave, one of which was somebody who claims in faith to believe that somebody can be warmed and filled, who is, who is uh, uh, naked and cold and destitute of daily, daily food. Perfect example. He says, one person says, be ye warmed and filled. Now, what is the implication here? The implication is, I believe that God can warm you and fill you. Now, as a matter of faith, is that incorrect? Of course not. I'll tell you this much, though. I have seen in Christians, and I've seen in myself, how often that can be a crutch. How often God's sovereignty and God's power can be a crutch for me not having to do something. You know what? Jesus talked about this quite a bit. Of course, I think the best example was with the Good Samaritan. How simple would it, was it, would it have been for uh, the priest and the Levite when walking and stepping over the body of this bloody man to say, God can heal this person, 
God can help this person. And I trust that God will do so. And then just go about your way. Well, Jesus said that the person who showed faith was the one who actually stopped and cared for this person. And James is saying here that the person who claims to have faith that something can be done, but also lives out that faith by using the resources that God has given him or her to actually take some, some work to help that person, that's, that's a person who's living out the faith that is allegedly there. And we saw earlier in this chapter another example of faith in action of somebody who is not a respecter of persons. The opposite of faith is somebody who has respect of persons. Somebody who says to one person, this person appears to be wealthy, this person appears to be uh, similar to me in some way, somebody who will be a benefit to my life and I will therefore prefer them. By the way, we see this in relation to a person coming to a rich person or a poor person. But this applies to every single one of us. Every single one of us is tempted to prefer certain people that we feel more comfortable with or that we feel we have more in common with or that we feel can benefit us in some way over people who cannot. It's, it's, it's a natural human inclination, which is why if we truly have the faith that we claim, and the Bible says that we have, if we have faith in God, we will have faith in his purpose in bringing us into contact with various people, and faith that if we uh, pour ourselves out or our time out or our money out for various other people that he will provide for us, if that is true, then we will act perhaps in a different way than, than our natural human inclination is. We see these two things reflected here, and these are exemplary of the types of of activities, the types of works that will be produced by living faith in our hearts. Not claimed faith, faith that has calcified generation or decades ago, a faith that knows the glib phrases but is not living itself out in our lives, it will manifest itself in these difficult and sacrificial things. Today, I think it's a little bit uh, more difficult to understand the sacrifice that is being called upon here in James. What is nowadays we have a, a a large amount of food. Clothing is readily available to people, and so we don't understand the sacrifice that it would have been in the time of James. Christians who were many times the poorest of society, as it were. <clears throat> And the difficulty that it was, the sacrifice that it took to clothe somebody else and to feed somebody else. This was something that was uh, not simply an ordinary give somebody on the side of the road a sandwich. This was something that was difficult. And James is saying, your faith will reflect itself on, when, on situations in which you are called upon to do the difficult thing. I think each one of us has seen in our own lives how easy it is to be faithful in things that are convenient for us. How easy it is to be thankful for things that are habitual for us. And how difficult it is 
to be faithful in things that are outside of our comfort zone, that are more, uh, uh, more of a challenge for us. Now, I'm going to go through a variety of, uh, just very shortly, a variety of different practical verses here in James. Let's think about them, and let's think about ways in which uh, each one of us, uh, our works, whether our works are reflecting the faith that we have. Now, in the first book of James, or sorry, the first chapter of James, we are we're reading about a couple of things, about a lack of wisdom. A person who has faith will seek wisdom of God. Because a person who has faith will know two things, that God has wisdom and that I do not. And so if you are not desperately seeking God's wisdom on a regular basis, well, that is a work, a work that you are not engaged in, that will be, that's a reflection on your faith. That perhaps your faith in God is not weak, but your faith in yourself is too strong. Your faith in your own wisdom. Well, we have uh, uh, in, also in chapter 1, a requirement to not be drawn away by lust and sin. Again, when we talk about lust, we generally think in terms of simply the sexual. And certainly that is a good, uh, a good measuring stick for us because it is one of the most powerful drives that human beings possess. And so certainly that is a good example. In your, uh, the, your life uh, in terms of your sexual drive, is it in reflection with the faith that you claim? How many uh, Christian uh, leaders, how many Christian pastors have claimed uh, a strong life of faith and their interior life, not simply what they fell into, not simply what they were tempted by, but they occasionally stumbled in, but that they had surrendered to, that they were fully, uh, uh, in fact, sometimes even using their position to seek out was not in keeping with that. And it's, again, it's very easy to see that in others. It's very easy to see that in others. Oh, man, that, that evangelist who claimed to be pure but was going to massage parlors. Oh, boy, well, how terrible. Thankfully, I'm not like that. My, my uh, indiscretions are, are much more private. No, no, no. That's not the lesson. Well, we see that lust is a simple one. It's an easy one. But you know what? Lust talks about a whole host of other desires. You know what? The works of how you approach your food, your desire for sleep or rest, your desire for friendship and company, in a whole host of other uh, things, your desire for uh, clothing, nice things that you have. All of these things fall into our desires, and they're all reflections of our heart. We can claim very simply to be faithful, to be followers of God, to put his best above our desires. And yet, the way that we live it out, our works, will uh, be a demonstration of the strength and life of our faith. Well, we also... Uh, 
see reflected in one, uh, chapter 1, and this is, this is a, a difficult one for me, bridling the tongue. People who claim, and this is one that I think each one of us struggles with at times because the tongue is, we see it reflected here, we see it reflected elsewhere in Scripture. The tongue is not only a reflection of our own heart, but it is also as a result of the wickedness at times of our own heart, heart uh, sometimes the least controllable. And the tongue, our words, how we express ourselves, are such a reflection of the state of our faith. I, I see this all the time, especially now and today in social media. I was talking again earlier about people using the word, the term Christ is King as some sort of political point, and then the next three tweets are filled with vile, improper, cruel, vindictive type of language. You go, boy, the tongue is reflecting a different faith than is being expressed. But that's very simple, not simply for the things that are committed in black and white, but with our own words. How easy is it to come into the house of God and say, praise the Lord, thank God, say all sorts of things. And then on Monday, when you're around a different group of people, to have words that are gossipy, words that are cruel, words that are, uh, that are filled with envy, words that are filled with covetousness, words that are filled with anger, anxiety, anxiety that is not reflecting a true faith. That's a, that's a big one that I see. Somebody who says, you know, God, they'll say in church on Sunday, you know, I know God has me and I believe that. And then the whole rest of the week, they're talking about how they're, they're not saying specifically, but their words are demonstrating that they don't really think that God is caring for them all that well. That God isn't really, hasn't been living up to his end of the bargain. And to a, to a worldly person going, well, you're, you're claiming that if I follow Jesus Christ, he's going to meet my needs. He's going to give me peace. And I'm hearing words that are not peaceful. Not simply in relation to other people, but simply internally. The tongue, the works of the tongue, are demonstration of the faith. You know what? We also see reflected... Uh, uh, as I talked about earlier, respective persons, somebody who claims faith in Jesus Christ but does not have the same heart that Jesus Christ did for all people, uh, a, a desire for our own gain and a lack of generosity. How about this? We also see in chapter 3 a lot more talk about the tongue, but we also see... Uh, the difference between a person of faith who is a peacemaker and somebody who is filled with strife and foment strife. Where does that come from? That is devilish. Now again, how many times have we seen in others, and perhaps not reflected on in our own heart, somebody who says, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, and they're the least peaceful person you know. <laughs> they spend all their time wanting to fight somebody else about something and wanting to argue with somebody else. And if you ask them, they'd say, well, listen, <laughs> Jesus flipped over the tables of the money changers. And you go, I don't know what that has to do with somebody cutting you off in traffic. You know, I don't know what that has to do with somebody arguing with you online about some political matter or some sports matter or some 
other matter, and you got, you got the vein standing out, and you're ready to fight with this person, you know, let's meet behind the Burger King, and we're going to set this right. The lack of peace. Guess what? If we have faith in Jesus Christ, we are going to be to seek peace. Why? Because we're going to know that God's sovereignty is big enough that we don't have to fight. Praise the Lord that we don't have to fight. Praise the Lord that the outcome of God's work on this earth is not related to our ability to physically fight. Josie might be the only one here who would be able to, to, to do anything. Mark, actually. Okay, so we got two. We're, 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 oh, Kyle, no, you put your hand up. I, I, haven't, I haven't seen it. No, but we, you know what? It's not related to our ability to physically fight. And guess what? Praise the Lord that it's also not based on our ability to argue. That the Spirit of God has power entirely independent of the gifts that we've been given. Guess what? This is a work. By the way, seeking peace is a work. It's not an absence of work. You know, sometimes we think of meekness and seeking peace as uh, simply being passive, sitting back. And so that's why a lot of times men hate the concept of Christian meekness. They want to find all the parts of Scripture about, uh, you know, Christian aggressiveness. You know, meekness is a work. It takes an active, active action and attitude in order to be meek. You know what? This is another example of works. Humility. Humility. How many Christians say that they have faith in the goodness of God, in the primacy of God, in the power of God? And yet, really, when you, you talk to them, a large amount of their faith seems to be in themselves. And sometimes, they'll even mix the two up. You'll see that sometimes with Christian leaders, who they say, God is so great that he gave me to you. Boy, isn't God amazing to you that he gave you such an amazing person to, to, to speak to you? And I, I, I remember, I heard a clip this last week of, of a preacher uh, saying, you know, somebody said to me, you know, why should I listen to your, you? You're a millionaire. He said, no, you're wrong. He said, I'm a multimillionaire. You keep speaking bad to me, I'm going to buy your station and have you fired. And he thought that was a hilarious joke. I said, listen, the, the scriptural faith that is being called upon is not really reflected in a work like that, <laughs> in words like that, in pride like that. Again, how simple is it to see, think of examples of that form of pride in other people and not think of examples of the pride of uh, our own hearts, the pride of our own uh, actions that reflects itself in uh, the way that we, the way that we uh, do not follow God. Now, there's just a couple other ones that I want to uh, uh, lead to speak on tonight or today. You know, there's also here about speaking evil of other people. There are of judging other people. There's also here of the oppressions of uh, people who are rich, who've condemned and killed the just. Well, each one of us can probably look at that and say, 
Again, that's not me. You know what? Every single one of the verses in James, from a practical matter, manifests itself in our lives at various times. We may not be tempted in specific ways, in specific actions, as is set forth in these specific examples. But you know, the pride, the anger, the covetousness, the lust, the uh, greed, all of these things are temptations that we ourselves fight. And so again, I'm going to circle back and close in relation to this. If your faith that you profess, and hopefully we profess faith here today, if your faith was to be judged based on your actions, if you got to heaven and, and God were to say, listen, you've claimed to have faith in Jesus Christ. Here, what actions have you exhibited that demonstrate that to be the case? What would your life and the totality of your life actually reflect? Number two, if what was known about Jesus Christ and Christianity were your actions, what you had done, what you had uh, uh, not simply done externally but internally, the state of your thoughts, the state of your uh, even emotional life, if that was the reflection of who Jesus Christ came to make people into, what would be that uh, what would be the effect? What would that be? And each one of us, I was, I was burdened, and I hope uh, that as we reflect on this together that we're each burdened, to ensure that through the grace of God, now we can't do any of this on our own power. This is not a call to greater will, to be stronger and, and really make ourselves uh, more and more dedicated in the sense of using our own will. However, it is a call to be seeking in every aspect of our lives, every aspect that's reflected here in such practical ways, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, not simply in words, but in deeds. Not simply in airy professions of faith, not simply in the ways that are simple for us, and that are straightforward for us, and that are uh, within the uh, normal actions of what has been expected of us, what we have gotten used to, but in the ways that are outside of our comfort zone. What is being reflected about our faith, and how, as we seek the Lord, can we use the grace that he has given us to greater work that he has called us to? Now, let's close now with prayer. Uh, and uh, uh, let's, let's be praying throughout the week as well, that God would uh, give, us, uh, the, uh, give us conviction where we need it, that God would give us strength where we need it, of course, which is every aspect, and that God would give us, uh, as brothers and sisters, a heart to support one another as we each seek to grow in these ways.